This week on the My Love of Golf podcast, we talk to Australian PGA golf pro Clint Rice. Clint takes us on his journey through to the Canadian Tour, where he played about six or seven years up there on the Australian Tour, and his time trying to qualify for the US Open. It's a great story. Clint's also become what I consider a golf business entrepreneur, and he's developing one of the biggest golf training aid businesses in Australia, and is a supplier of some of the world's leading training aids to the golf industry here in Australia. He's got great connections throughout the world of professional golf, especially in the coaching space. He's still an active coach, and if you like the sound of Clint, you can seek him out for coaching. So, sit back, relax, enjoy the chat between Clint and I. He's a super guy, very giving with his time, very knowledgeable, and this is a really great story. So, enjoy, thanks for listening, really appreciate it. Clint Rice, welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. How are you, sir? Great. Thanks, Ross. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, mate, it's an absolute pleasure and uh, I really appreciate your time because this week, you know, you're the second um, golf pro that we've had on the My Love of Golf podcast. One of them, your contemporaries, Timmy Wise, that you probably would have seen before. And, you know, I'm hoping Big shoes to fill. Big shoes to fill following Timmy. But, you know... I was keen to catch up with you because, you know, you've got another dimension of golf pro that's moved into the golf industry and making a a career in that space. And, you know, to get to that journey, which we'll talk about, you know, you've got a a very colourful, maybe not colourful is the right word, but a a history of um, professional golf touring, as you want to say. And I thought we might just open up with, um, maybe you could give us a little bit of a, a background as why you love golf, how did you get into golf? And where that journey took you in your, from your early early childhood through your junior career, right up until yeah. uh, your professional life. Yeah, for sure. Um, I started golf pretty late compared to a lot of guys that I played and competed against. Um, I started in year ten at school uh, through a golf program, so I had, had uh, interest in seeing what golf was all about. Started going to a local golf course, Riverside Golf Club down in Tassie. Grew up down in in Tasmania, so started doing a golf program, uh, and then shortly after that, when I left school, I actually did a greenkeeping apprenticeship. So I've covered a fair few different areas of the golf industry. So started out did the greenkeeping apprenticeship when I left school, and then once I finished that, I moved into the the PGA traineeship. So did the traineeship through the PGA down in Tassie, and then really got. Um, really got interested in in coaching straight out of my traineeship. So I actually moved up to Townsville, um, moved from Tassie to, to Townsville, started that's doing bit, some coaching up there. That's a bit of a difference in uh, location. And, you know, this this is now – I checked the other day, Clint, and I know you, you've asked me before, you know, who's listening to this podcast. We've had a couple of downloads, uh, a, well, a number of downloads in Ireland, a number in the UK, 
and a handful of states in the US, which you probably know better than me, you know, I think Kentucky, Illinois, Idaho, uh, Maine, and um, Washington. And those people, wow. those people in those states won't know the distance between Tasmania and Townsville, but let me tell you, it's a long bloody way. Yeah, it might be something like um, Miami to Chicago, possibly, <laughs> or maybe even up to Canada. So massive climate change, massive, exactly. Yeah, one end of the country to the other. So, and why did you end up in Townsville? Um, a couple of mates that were right there coaching, a couple of fellow Tasmanians that would, had made the the trek up north to get out of out of Tasmania, and went up there and coached for a while, and and. Um, Started to get playing a bit more. I played a bit through my traineeship and sort of got a bit hooked on coaching. And then I actually went back to Tassie for a while. So I don't know why, moved back to Tassie. And I was trying to get into a few pro-amps. I had no ranking at that stage. I was a PGA member and no starts, anything. So especially back in Tassie doing a bit of, bit of casual work. And I got a, uh, I got a start in the Audi four-ball four-round tournament up at the Gold Coast. So made the journey up back up to Queensland, played this um, played this event, and so, I've had So before, ideas. before, before, can we come back to the Audi four ball, the start of this uh, playing journey? So let's go back to greenkeeping. Yep. It's always a topic that interests me because my brother's the greenkeeper of the family, now, yep. now a coal miner, but uh, he started his golfing career as a greenkeeper. What what was that like down in Tassie at five a.m. in the morning? Yeah, the reason that it got me to start with was just because I wanted to play more golf. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I liked the idea of starting at five, finishing at two, and playing golf all afternoon. So I pretty much did that for four years. I studied horticulture. Uh, I actually studied year eleven and twelve at the same time uh, at night. I'd actually. Play golf. I'd actually work from five thirty to about two thirty. I'd play golf till about six, and then I'd go to Launceston College in the evenings and I'd study there, doing sports science and a couple of other subjects, and then I'd also study horticulture as well. So I had a pretty full program there for a few years. Um, but I, yeah, half the half the year in Tassie greenkeeping was staring out the crib room window, looking at frozen ground, uh, frosty greens. And the other half was trying to find water to keep the place alive. So it was it was a pretty interesting uh, job, actually. So it, it definitely helped when going out to play and travelling to different parts of the world, playing tournament golf, understanding grasses and how drainage works and slope. It, it, it's in a funny way. It actually helped me in my playing career later on. So yeah, well, I think I'd probably go back and do it again. <laughs> I was going to ask that, you know, uh, uh, that's what I was thinking, of, and you just said that that's the fact that I want, you know, how much does that help you, um, you know, in a playing sense, um, you know, just knowing about grasses and, and terrain, and and I guess you get a very good feel for what the ball's going to do when it hits the ground, you know, through your feet. I imagine, you know, you can you can probably tell more than the average person just through your feet walking on the ground, what what the ball's going to do and how it's going to react and perform when it gets hits the green. So interesting. Yeah. So. And, and, and knowing different characteristics like power to bent and Bermuda grass and and knowing how they grow and what sort of um, what sort of watering goes on behind that. So yeah, you sort of think about the science behind horticulture. It does help a bit. So for the golf nerds, we'll continue on this thread for a second. For the golf nerds and the power and the bent and the 
pure distinctions and all these different grasses, do you have a favourite? Um, I'm actually a bit of a bent grass guy, Alaris. <laughs> I do like pure bent greens. Um, and I actually don't mind a bit of uh, like three to eight, a bit of the, the tropical type grasses um, that are quite grainy. I think they can be kind of fun to to work out the grain and, and play with that, which a lot of guys pull the hair out with. I, I kind of don't mind a bit of bit of that uh, grainy Bermuda grass. I was just going to say, you're a sadist because uh, <laughs> of the times that I've played in Queensland, you know that ball sitting on what I can only best describe as crust. Not grass, it's a crusty sort of grass-like substance and it's slow uphill and like grease lightning downhill and doesn't spin. It's, uh, mm. it's probably one of the hardest um, transitions, you know, going from what we play on down here to playing on that. It's probably one of the hardest transitions in playing golf I've ever made. But um, Yeah, totally. For sure. I agree with that. So, mate, let's go back to the Audi four-ball tournament yeah. on, on the Gold Coast. So is this yeah, so is this your big money debut? So that was a bit of a turning point to get me away from that was I basically that was the last time I worked at the start of my golf career. So I was working in Tassie, got a start, someone pulled out, got a last minute start at his four ball and I went and played it. And I made the cut in it. It wasn't that I did well at it, it was the fact that I met a I met a business owner by the name of Andy Thomas and he offered through one of the the dinners one evening, I mentioned I had the intention to, to go to Q school in Canada, go to the Canadian, to a Q school two months later and play over there and try and play some more four-round tournaments instead of just trying to play pro-ams all the time. And uh, he offered to sponsor me to do that. So um, went back to Tassie and got all my gear together and um, went, flew up to Canada and played Q school. Um and I won Q school. So I won the first event up there, which was the Q school, and then played all that, that season and ended up playing six seasons up there. So that really sort of got me kick-started, that one event, just getting getting a start, meeting an opportunity to meet a business owner that was like, okay, let's get you going. Um, we can see that you, you're keen and you work hard and you, and you want to do this. So he got behind me and we've been really good mates ever since. And then... Played Canadian until that first season, and so what year? What year is this, mate? What? How long ago is this? Two thousand and eight. Yeah, right. So not that long ago. No, not that long ago. Um, and then moved, then came back to Australia. Uh, Pre-queued for the Jim uh, Johnny Walker over in Perth. Got through. Oh, let's go back to Australia. So six years in Canada. Is that right? Is yeah, it... it was. Yeah, we got up there for the winter. So the good thing about Canadian tour is you play from May, June through to like September, October. So through our winter, when there's no events on down here, you can go to Canada and play good four-round tournaments week after week, and you know, play some competitive golf against you know a lot of the guys. We you know, for example, travelled for a few weeks with James Harm. He was a guy up there playing. He would be thirty fiftieth on the order of merit. Um, and now he's won twice in the PGA Tour. So to sort of play and compete with a lot of those guys early on in their careers, it was really good for for your game and to get away from just trying to travel the travel the country playing pro ams. You could actually go and play good good tournaments up there. So what was your existence like? Were you, were you making a buck and and travelling and and living okay, or was it you know that golf pro backpacker stuff? 
lifestyle that you know you, you might envision to what, what somewhere in between uh, what was that like yeah it's, it's um can be pretty confronting at times like you you know like i remember my first year up there was great i made every cut uh we're playing some, for some good money that was 2008 we had like 21 events on the canadian tour and it was it was flying good good endorsements um it was a great tour to be on and then coming back to Australia and then going back the next year when the GFC hit 2009, we lost half the tournaments. It was back to about 10 or 11 tournaments. The prize money had halved. There was there were gaps in the schedule, whereas the previous year, you only had to take a week off here and there just to get a breather. So definitely saw a massive drop in events and prize money globally, I guess. I guess the only tour that didn't struggle through that was the PGA Tour. Um, we saw a lot of web events and Aussie tour events and and uh, Canadian tour events just get hit really hard in 2009 and it made it difficult. A lot of guys were now having to get sort of part-time jobs and it meant for me that, one, I had to work harder to play better to make money and I had to fill it in with playing a few pro-ams around in between tournaments. So I'd play, I went to 2009, 2010, I went to One Asia Q School, got my card there. So I had sort of three three pathways there. I was playing Canadian tour, playing the One Asia tour and the Aussie tour, all sort of cycled in through a 12-month period. So, um, and then sort of throwing a few pro-ams here and there. So I kept myself busy um, and I was always looking for the next next Q school to attend or next tour to sort of grow to. But uh, at times it could be tough. At times you, you're living on your credit card. At times you might have, you know, you might be winning... 50, 60 grand a month. So it just, yeah, it can really be tough at that level until you break onto a main European PGA tour. It's, I think a lot of guys can relate to that situation, playing at that level where you're often breaking even and trying to just get ahead to you know, plan that in the next few months to know that you can financially play for the next few months. So I cut you off before we started talking about coming back to Australia. And so let's go back to that. So, because that's is that where you know you got a reasonable break? Is that uh, uh, yeah? So, yeah, what happened? So, my first year, uh, yeah, so I went, I went over to the um Johnny Walker at the Vines, did a pre qualifier, typical pre qualifier. You have 100 guys for four spots. Um, I'd played the I think I shot four under at Cottesloe and then got into like a four way playoff for the last spot. With, uh, I think it was like Scott Laycock and Martin. No, I forget. Anyway, a few, few regulars on the tour. Bernie, the first three holes of the playoff to get the last spot. So played that. Finished about 40th. You know, picked up probably 15 odd grand. And then it got me rolling a bit. Did a pre qualify for a couple of other events. Got into a couple and managed to get my Aussie card through some pre qualifying. So sort of got the money up on the Aussie tour that way. And then, yeah, just kept playing. I think the following year I had a runner-up at the Queensland PGA and then a few sort of half-decent finishes here and there. And, uh, yeah, it was just sort of balancing the playing in Australia, heading back to Canada, playing over there. So that was that was six or seven years doing that and uh, trying to keep your head above water all the time. So this is now like almost... Six, eight, six or seven years, or 
years on tour. Is that is that in total or is it yeah, four yeah, four so or five about, in Canada and then another six or seven doing that? Was it is it? Yeah, so about 2014, I started to find it. I lost the interest, lost the passion. So I used to love practicing. I'd love to just go out hit balls all day and chip and putt and play golf. It was just you know six days a week. I'd just be flat out practicing and heading to the gym and just loved it. And then I just started to wear off. Um, my partner got a job offer to move to Chicago full time. So we had an offer to Chicago, started 2015, must have been. And I'd sort of, I'd had enough of playing, so I headed off and I I managed to get a job in a, a, uh, a golf academy in Chicago. So as you know, half the year it's under snow, half the year it's, it's pretty nice. So stopped playing in 2015. I was like, I'm done with playing. I'm just going to work on my coaching. And I got sort of a few months into that and a pre-qualifier came up for the US Open. So I did the local qualifier and had a couple over and got in because the standard wasn't super great for the local qualifier. So that meant I got to go off to the, the sectionals, which I was in Ohio. So thought I'd head over and do the 36 hole qualifier. And at this stage, I'm, I'm coaching full time, not really practicing. So I go over and play. And there was like 120 guys for four spots to get into the US Open at Chambers Bay. And I was in the, in the morning, I'd shot like one under, which runs probably about 40th. Afternoon, I'm playing and I get through nine holes and I'm seven under for the front nine, eight under for the qualifier, and we have to get called off because of the weather. So we go inside and all the scores are up and I'm sitting second. So all of a sudden I'm thinking, right, got nine holes to play, and basically if I shoot around par for nine holes, I'm going to play in the US Open. And I, it just was, it was a crazy thought because I wasn't even playing and never played an event like that throughout my career. And we had two hours to sit there watching the rain tumbling down, waiting to get back out there. So it was a pretty interesting couple of hours, <laughs> as you can imagine. So rain stopped. We got went back out at like 5 p.m. to play nine holes. First hole back out there, I birdie it. I'm thinking, how good is this? <laughs> then we off to the US Open. And you can imagine the thoughts going through your head that you're trying to squash, you're trying to get rid of them. I've had 10 years of sports psychology trying to, center myself and not think not think about things I shouldn't be thinking about and then um, the next few holes were a bit were a bit challenging <laughs> I was I was I, I struggled to keep it on the golf course for a few holes so I, I had a you know a double and a bogey and another double which sort of set me back a fair way and then I managed to birdie 16 or 17 to give myself a bit of hope and came in and I was actually sitting fourth I was like wow this is uh this could happen and there was a young, unfortunately, sat, sitting there waiting, a young college kid came in and, and booted the last hole, which put me to fifth. So it meant that I was an old for the US Open. So you go home for two weeks, as, as, you don't go straight and straight to the tournament like a normal tour event. You go home for two weeks and you wait for someone to pull out. <laughs> so I actually started practicing because I wow, if someone pulls out, I'm playing a major. So went to Chambers Bay, you get all the, all the practice rights and access to everything at the US Open by the golf course. So I turn up and practice and I got talking to Mark Leishman on the on the Tuesday. And this is where things changed a little bit that week. Um, it turned from a a pretty um, exciting week as far as, you know, seeing 
all your Jason Days and Tigers practicing and being around them and checking out how US Open works to being a little bit crazy. So um, sport talking to Mark Leishman and he asked me when I was playing a practice round. And I said, I, mate, I'm, I'm not actually playing a practice round because as an alternate, you're only allowed to practice and walk the course and do all that sort of stuff. He goes, no, nah, no, nah, nah, that's not on. He goes, you've got to see this golf course. <laughs> so let's um, let's get you a game. So he goes, Ogilvy's playing it uh, in the afternoon by himself. I have a word to Jeff and off you go. So sure enough, I put into myself in the pre in the in the practice round and head off to the head off to the um, first tee at, at sort of at two o'clock with with Jeff. <laughs> and uh, it's there's no hiding from playing a practice round. The stands are full. They call you to the tee. There's your there's your, there's your mug on every scoreboard and name up on the big screens through the round. So I'm thinking, this might not last very long, but Jeff assures me it's all good. <laughs> so now we've so you knew. So you, so you knew that you're taking this massive, that you're not supposed to be out there, but you're taking this massive risk by just jumping on anyway. And they put your name up yeah. there, so you're probably thinking, oh, well, it's all good. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't shy away from it. I because in yeah, exactly. And, it, and why would why would you? Put, yeah, exactly. And you and you put your name on the electronic t sheet, so it's not like you're trying to sneak out. It's like okay, I'll, I'll let them know I'm playing. You know, <laughs> Jeff and Mark said it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know what? How many times are you going to be the US Open? So, oh uh, yeah, we peg it up and we we play the first, second, third, and it's just it's lined with people. Like, incredible. And just you know, playing the course. And at the end of the day, it's still I'm still trying to play this tournament. So I was I was playing a practice round to try and learn the course and see how it all played. Uh, I get to the fifth green, I think we're on, and this uh, this USGA golf cart just comes flying up the fairway. <laughs> <laughs> and Ogilvy's like having a bit of a look at it, a bit of a grin, and he's like, "This will be interesting." So sure enough, the official comes over and says, "Clint, I think there's been a misunderstanding. I don't think you." I think we should have you out here being an alternate. Um, you've got to take your – we need you to remove your club back to the, the baggage storage and uh, you can walk the course with Jeff, that's fine, but we don't want you out here. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And meanwhile, Jeff wasn't too happy. He sort of told him how, you know, the USGA have been saying for a while, if you haven't played Chambers Bay 10 times, you're really going to struggle. So, you know, he was sort of flying the flag to me saying, you know, if Clint gets in to the tournament tomorrow – um, or on Thursday, and he hasn't played it. He's got no chance. So, you know, give the guy a break. But they, they didn't want to know about it. So I walked the rest of the round with Jeff, and uh, I asked the rules of the, the USGA guy, do you mind if you just take my clubs back into the, the storage with me? You've got your cart. I'll just walk in. Yeah, no problem. So we strapped the clubs in the back, and he took them off. Didn't think much of it at that stage. They went in, walked the course, went back, had a dinner in the players' lounge, and then... I had a had a message on Twitter from a media guy from the some US outlet. I think it was a newspaper or something. Wanted an interview, and I was like, "No, nah, mate, there's there's no story. There's nothing. It was just a misunderstanding. We're all good. I'm still here to play the tournament." So that was that. Well, we went off to bed that night. Woke up the next morning and put on social media, and there's this massive story running that there was this Australian golfer that's been kicked off the golf course, clubs confiscated, the bad boy of Australian golf. And so this story just ran rampant for the whole week. Um, so it was, it was an interesting way to see what the media can do. And I guess uh, 
it was, and then the only opportunity I had was I, the Golf Channel filming me on the on the on the Wednesday before the before the tournament, and they, they asked if I wanted to do an interview. So I did an interview and sort of cleared it up and and sort of just told them my side of events. But uh, nonetheless, it was a it was an unbelievable um, story because that day and that week, the amount of the amount of people that wanted to ask me what had happened and do an interview on it, which it, it didn't seem like a big deal to me, but to the media it was quite a quite a story. <laughs> that is a that, that's amazing. I, look, you know, obviously I knew you know the end result of that story, but I never heard you tell it with the depth that you just have and uh you you put yourself in in your shoes in that time and uh wow what how amazing must it have been like you're out there playing chambers bay with with jeff you know like a a major a major you know the the representative of australian golf on tour at the time you know one of the one of the statesmen and 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 jeff can't even uh pull it pull pull any strings or any rank but it's such such the aussie way eh? like you know I, I don't know Jeff Ogilvie and I don't know Mark Leishman clearly, but once again, put myself in your shoes. I can imagine Leishman going, "Mate, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. She'll be all right, mate." Yeah, you know, the, the lad from Warrnambool. Yeah, his language was, was a bit more colourful than that, but you can imagine that he was he was just like that. And to listen to like you know PGA Tour winner and a US Open champion sort of suggest to you that's fine, and I'd do it again if it was. And and funnily enough, two years later they changed the rule. I think it might have been for the next year. They changed the rule to allow, I think, the first five ultimates to play the practice round. So, if anything good came of it, was the fact that I got a USGA rule change for the US Open. So that was kind of nice. And okay, that was I made a bit of a change in golf. <laughs> Mate, and and credit to you. You know, they they probably saw the media furor and said, so we can't have the alternate getting all the media the media coverage yeah. when we want the tournament to get. But uh, mate, that's yeah. a, that's an amazing story. It's uh, so. What happened after that in terms of your so, you know tournament and playing golf? Yeah, it sort of ignited me a little bit to play. Like as you can imagine, being in the US Open to be inside the ropes and meet these guys and hang out with them, and it got it got the juices flowing again. So I actually moved to Orlando with my partner, and we based out of there, being a bit more appropriate for golf. And I started playing games, stopped coaching, started playing games full-time, playing a lot of the mini tour stuff. Went out and did a few qualifiers to the web.com and uh, I actually went back and did WebQ school and I went through and I missed I missed uh, my cut on my final stage by a shot at second stage. So I got through first stage, went through second stage and missed my cut by shot. So, yeah, that was kind of the... Another uppercut from from tournament golf. So I pretty much then uh, the visas visas were starting to run out at that stage, and decided to move back to Australia. I was and in the in the background, I was doing a bit of work with with Super Speed Golf and Orange Whip and Body Track. I had some interest in uh, over speed training and ground mechanics, and getting involved with that through through uh, through those guys in the US, and then. So all of a sudden, I moved back to Australia, and um, I had a vision for building a a business to bring back a lot of these products that weren't getting into Australia. So I found that there were so many awesome training aids and golf technology in the US that just weren't getting down here, or very hard to find if you lived in Australia. So, so you had you had sorry, so you had 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 you know this vision 
through your career and you know your desire to coach and your you know interest around coaching to you thought saw the opportunity to say well these products aren't getting down to this part of the world so let's be part of that so timeline wise what year is this 2016 yeah 2016 so just over just over two years ago Yes, I started 2016, moved back, uh, and yeah, started from scratch. So I started from ground zero. Uh, I started with Super Speed, Body Track, my first sort of two products that I bought back in, and I started the company Performance Brands Australia. And I had vision. I started with that as being okay. I, I don't know where this could be in 10, 20 years' time. So I'm going to make it sort of brand neutral and and industry neutral, so I can have potential to branch into other sports and came back started that and starting out a business from scratch I, I needed some cash flow so I came back and I started coaching so natural progression to go into coaching from my playing days from my coach was I got coached by Dennis McDade for about 11 years I came back and did some coaching up at Yarra Bend and a bit in the in the indoor facility in the city and then as my business grew, my coaching got reduced to the point where I um, added more products and I started supplying uh, the, the guys like yourself at Drummond and became a supplier of a few guys and PGA pros around Australia. And I found that my vision was was pretty pretty accurate with the fact that there was a, well, there was a niche in training aids and that technology that people were sort of screaming out for especially you know consumers that if they were to buy something like that would have to try and navigate their way through american or international uh suppliers so it became an avenue for for a lot of uh club members and social golfers to be able to go okay i want an orange ripper i want a smart ball i can go to come and in in fishwick or or in the in the city or wherever they go and get these products instead of having to try and source them out from the us so it's been an in so that sort of journey just really evolved in the last few years and I've I've grown probably quicker than I expected and planned to, which meant that my coaching got put on the back burner. And I still coach a couple of elite players, a couple of trainees and a couple of guys that are looking at turning pro pretty soon. And I love that. I love that side of it. I love sort of keeping in touch with coaching because I can still keep in touch with my technology and training aids and still put them to practical use. Uh, but it only takes up sort of a few hours every every fortnight now. But uh, so what do you, uh, what do you put down to the the growth in the the, the training aid um, industry? I guess you know because if you follow some of the stuff at the around the PGA show and those times, you know you, you see loads of them. But what do you put it down to? You know because it, it's been that last few years that they've started to grow, and training aids have been around forever. You know, but. I guess before that, the hanger that you know, you know, we're using the coat hanger. But what, what is it? Is it the internet? Is it is it a different philosophy in in golf learning? What do you think? Yeah, there's, I yeah, the the internet's huge, obviously, because now you can broadcast the use of something. Coaches can broadcast what they're doing and what they're what they're doing. And I think just the amount of training aids have grown. I remember when I was a junior, like ninety six, ninety seven. I remember there was the swing guide. And an impact bag, and can't think of much else. <laughs> but now there's just hundreds. And 
I've just been to the recent PGA show in Orlando in January and just the amount of training aids that just keep popping up and the, the, the technology that goes into them and yeah, the amount of elite coaches that are using them and, and sort of endorsing how good a lot of them are. Mm. So it's, it's just such a big range. Like, for example, the Tour Striker range. There's a new pro- a new, couple of new products added every year. They started with the Tour Striker Iron and then it's grown into the, the Educator and then the Smart Ball and Rory McIlroy and Justin Rose use the Smart Ball and it's just incredible what, what they've done and everyone can see that they use it because of the internet. It's yeah, they use it and it gets shared and followed and liked and everything just grows and swells. Tor, Tor Striker for me is the brand that sort of first caught my attention as a as a training aid brand, and it was something that pop you know used to pop up as banner ads or whatever ads they were called you know online when because it was serving you golf content. And this is more than five years ago because I've been doing what I've been doing now for five years. So it was before that, and I thought. Yeah, you know, this is this is weird. You know, this seven iron that has a weird face on it. Who's ever going to use that? And to see you know that brand now grow to have a load of products. And as you said, they're releasing new ones every year. And the um, smart ball, it's it's sensational. Um, that yeah. and the tour striker iron, it it works unbelievably well. You know, like as you know, I've got a couple, and uh, it, they they do work really well the just describe what the um the ball the tour striker smart ball does if you can if you can describe yeah. it so people can you know understand Absolutely. what it does yeah so it's obviously it's the number one seller globally and literally they can't make them fast enough so it's the inflatable ball on a lanyard hangs around your hangs around your neck the ball sits between your forearms and then when you swing back to the top of your back swing or halfway back the ball stays hopefully between your forearms. If you get narrow or your right arm gets behind you, your elbows separate, the ball drops out. So it allows you to maintain your width and arm connection with your body. And then same on the follow-through. So down through impacts where a lot of people might scoop it, they might get narrow, they might bend their elbows apart, get that type of look. It allows the any player, beginners through to obviously Justin Rose, to feel what it's like to maintain radius throughout their swing. And then obviously through to follow through the same thing. So such a such a simple concept, but incredibly effective. And like I said, I've got I've seen beginners use it and just understand the concept of connection and width. And then obviously the amount of tour players that use it. So that one's just crazy. And then I guess the other one that's just grown massively. And I started with these guys when I lived in Chicago in 2015 when it first started. Is Super Speed Golf. So. This is an interesting story. So I, I was sort of getting into coaching and I wanted to understand more about developing club head speed. So I simply just Googled long drive training center. I wanted to see where they train long drive guys in the US. And there was a training center in Chicago. So went down and saw these guys and introduced myself. And they had some prototypes of super speed golf. So they said, look, we've got these prototypes here. Um, you know, you're an Aussie guy. You've played a bit on tour. Do you want to? Do you want to do some testing? So I got on there. My club head speed's always been around 107, absolute max, 106, 107. So they tested me, tested my 3D data, so how I was sequencing my uh, ground mechanics, how I was using the ground with pressure and force and my club head speed. And then we did a session with these super speed clubs 
and then retested. And my club head speed straight after was 112. 112.5 was my average, which was like 10, 15 minutes straight after that session. So I was like, wow, I've been trying to develop club head speed for 15 years and haven't increased it at all through a lot of different fitness avenues. So, and then the other important part was all my 3D data, so how my body moved was so much more efficient. I'd sequence better. Um, I, was using, I was using the ground a lot better. My club delivery was a lot more efficient. I wasn't over the top. I was actually shallowing the club better and screwing the face up. So I went on a bit of a journey with them over the next six months, recording data every every month. And I got my club head speed to 119.5 is what we recorded after six months. So I went from 107 max to 119.5 and matching it with some 3D data and ground mechanics that were just much more athletic. And, so, ju- and just to qualify, you, you haven't spent an hour lifting any any tin in the gym only doing super, super speed work, yeah? Yeah, and I, I'd always done gym. Like, gym's just what I do. I do. I go to the gym now three times a week, and I love that side of just, you know, keeping some sort of fitness level. So nothing nothing else changed. Change, yeah. I did, yep. yeah, so I did that three times a week. And so that was, no one had it. No tour players had it. No one in Australia had it. I was sort of really early on. So I did a case study on my data for those six months, and then I started actually doing a bit of, bit of casual part-time work with them on the on the side and um, would go to tour events and no one would want to know about Super Speed. Like, oh, no, we haven't heard of it. And it was no one wanted to really know about it. And then started to gain momentum. Um, I actually went – I was getting – did some coaching with Scott Hamilton, who coaches a lot of PGA Tour players. And he saw that I had them and I told him my story about how I developed the club head speed. So he got – he bought like 10 sets for all his players – uh, which is like Steve Bowditch, Boo Weekly. Um, oh, jeez, I can't think of a lot of the other guys. It's like, yeah, it'd be about, be about 10 or 12 of them on the two PGA Tour. And they all started using it. So that got them out on tour. And he invited the guys from Superspeed to the BMW Championship to get on the range. And then they all sort of kicked off from there and they got on the range. And then obviously they started getting in front of players through like 2016. And now three years on, we just had Dustin Johnson get a set this week. Um, he's now started using it, and there's over 600 tool players that now use it. So it's just grown, probably the fastest growing product I've seen on tour in training aids. So for someone who hasn't seen what the super speed um, set of sticks are, just to explain exactly what they are. Yeah, so there's three clubs, and they're not clubs you hit balls with either. They're three weighted clubs, so you've got uh, extra stiff shafts, and you've got a weight on the end. So the lightest one is 20% lighter than a standard driver. The middle one is 10% lighter, and the heaviest one is 5% heavier. So you, it's the same concept as overspeed training in other sports. So a sprinter, for example, he'd sprint downhill or get pulled along to be able to sprint faster than he normally would, and then he'd sprint on a flat, then he'd sprint on uphill. So the same concept is being applied to golf. And... It's been incredible. It's the first sort of real way that we've seen players of all levels increase speed and increase it through efficiency, through using the ground and using their body, not just you know using the hands and and uh, swinging themselves off their feet and losing balance. So there's been, I guess, it's just been a huge, um, huge following on on uh, on tour with a lot of these guys just seeing what it can do. Um, and they're all using it, whether it's Jim Furyk, 
uh, Justin Rose, Jason Day. They're just yeah, it's just just what they do. It's part of part of their everyday or every second day routine now. The number the numbers that I saw that were impressive were Phil. You know, he's mm-hmm. 48, 49, or put, uh, approaching 49. And have you, uh, do you know the numbers that he, you know, like over the years, what he's been able to generate and since he started using the super speed sticks? Yeah, wasn't he? I think it was something along those lines that he was like 114, 113, and then he went to like 120. Yeah. yeah or along the, those yeah. lines, yeah. it'll take a few. But Which, for yeah. 48 years old, 120 miles per hour with the driver is serious mumbo. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're talking about three yards of carry for every mile per hour, typically, on a centre hit. So, <laughs> like, you can get some – you can change the way you play golf. Because, for example, when I, I went through the change, I had to go get my clubs all reshafted. So I was using S-Flex shafts because I was at 107. And then I, all of a sudden I was at, you know, 119, 117. I needed X-Flex, heavier shafts. So – it just went to show that yeah, I was was swinging it different. It was a huge change. So, mate, um, you know the growth of the the, the training aid uh, is is going to keep going. I'm, I'm sure for for both our sakes for what we do, and um, you know it's great to see that your business is going from strength to th- strength to strength. Is a you know surely all that time on tour. Whether it be the Canadian tour or, or, or hanging around at you know with the super speed guys, they might, you must have a couple of little. You know, are there any little nuggets of gold in there? Any little stories? You know, have you have you, have you seen anyone? Have you heard anything? Have you done anything? Have you had a drink with someone? Come on, anything? Yeah, I, well, I, I, the US Open week was still a spin out, and I guess the component of that I didn't sort of mention was so on the Thursday when I didn't get a start in the US Open uh, myself. And um, a caddy, Andy Johnson, who's an Adelaide guy living in Canada, he he came down for the week just in case I got in. So we didn't get in on the Thursday, run teed off, no back injuries. So we went to the players' lounge and we thought we'll have a couple of refreshing beverages and, and re- watch the golf for the afternoon. And everyone was out playing, there were a couple of players' wives and families in the players' lounge. And anyway, so we're sitting there having a, having a drink, chatting about the week. And then Sean Foley comes over, who's uh, coach Tiger Woods for couple of years and he's the coach of Justin Rose and he said guys do you mind if I join you for a drink I just need to get away from everything so we're like yeah no no worries Here's, what do you want <laughs> so he sits down and he says uh, uh, Scott Hamilton's going to join he's obviously you know PGA tour coach as I mentioned before so Sean Foley Scott Hamilton sit down and we continue to have have drinks with them for the next three or four hours just the four of us and the stories and the, the um, information that these guys had was incredible, especially after Sean was coaching Tiger for a couple of years and spending a lot of time at his home in Orlando and um, the experience he's had with Justin Rose. It was absolutely incredible, which led me to, you know, exchanging numbers and being able to catch up with them. And when I moved to Orlando not long after, I got to go and spend a fair bit of time with Sean and watch him coach, and he was an unbelievable mentor and and uh, an instructor to, to watch and and see up close how he how he goes about teaching PGA tour players so it was um, yeah that, that that was probably a real standout along the way of playing Canadian tour you meet some incredible people I remember playing 
a pro-am become a still really good mates with him. Um, he's a, he's a, he's the president of Sony Music for North America. So played with him in a pro-am, and he he gave me some tickets at the end of the pro-am to go and see Maroon Five after the after the round and have a, have a dinner in his VIP area and, and ended up staying in touch with him and caught up with him a couple of years ago actually in Chicago and you know is a guy that has Dave Grohl stay at his house and Justin Timberlake and and uh, it's just amazing the people that you can meet through playing tournament golf and they're looking up to you they're playing with you in awe of what you're doing and wanting to spend time with you and they might be the you know the president of Sony Music or um, a rock star of whoever they are, but their passion's golf and they love it, and it, and it brings you all together. And it doesn't takes doesn't matter what your bank account size is or what your what your education is. It's golf is just unbelievable in that way that can can bring you together with someone that's that's uh, it's quite extraordinary. That is the truly wonderful thing about this game. That is the you know it's a perfect. Um analogy to the way that I sort of see it and uh, totally totally agree and share those thoughts you know the, the people that I've met you know luckily enough doing what I do you know the other year I went and played golf with some people that I made in in my store in Ireland other side of the world just through striking mm-hmm. up a conversation and we worked out that we'd be in the same part of the world at the same time they were members of a club not too far from the part of the island that I was staying in and we went and had a game of golf you know we just just drove down there pulled in the car park 10 minutes later they pulled up in the car park hadn't seen each other for eight or nine months but it was like uh and we only met each other for three or, you know an hour and uh it was it was really really nice so different different level of story to yours but same sort of thing yeah. you, know? you just meet people and if it's golf it brings people together and it's you know the boundaries are uh, you know there are no boundaries you know people just being people and playing golf and and that's that's a cool thing about our game Hey, yeah, and I, I, was, I remember a, um, a situation up in Canada. A guy was lucky to meet me, so <laughs> as it was, which I don't often, I don't often say that, but he was lucky to meet me because we play this on the Canadian Tour, which like most tour events, on the Wednesday before the event, you play a pro am, and we're in Edmonton at Edmonton Country Club, and uh, this was probably, I think it was maybe 2012ish, and middle of my Canadian Tour days, and get paired with this guy, these three guys, and one's a vet, one's a doctor, and one's a, let's say a lawyer, makes the, sound, the story sound good. And we tee off on the on the 10th, and we're playing, and, and two of the guys are okay. The doctor's just, he's terrible. Like, he he'd never really played much. He's hitting along the ground, and we get through, and, you, and you're out there trying to map the course and do your own thing for the tournament, as well as, in, you know, you want to have a good day with them and get them through, and hear what they have to hear what they do and hear about their life we get to about the 15th and i start giving him a few tips and getting him straightened out 16 he starts to make contact 17 he gets them off the ground and he's like wow this is unreal i'm actually starting to play golf 18 which was our ninth hole was this par three across this big valley and it's probably a 160 meter par par three we all tee off this guy uh the doctor tees off that's got a newfound love for golf after a couple of tips and hits it, doesn't even watch, grabs his club, spins out it, lucky to keep his feet, walks out of his cart, puts his club in the in the bag. I'm watching the ball, goes up, rolls along the green into the hole, holes out. I'm going, <laughs> like, 
ballistic. I'm like, how's those? And he's like, doesn't realize what's happened. And I'm going, mate, he's that only one. He's, they're not getting it. They don't quite understand it. So we go up there and there's this white um, SUV sitting beside the green. And it was a uh, Lexus. That's it. Lexus white seat. I can picture it as clear as day. And there's a couple of guys, a couple of guys sitting there in chairs, and they have some paperwork and a folder, and they're like, "You know what you've just done?" And they're like, "No, no, you've just won this motor vehicle." And it was a seventy thousand dollar Lexus sitting there. This guy just won, and he was stunned. He could not believe it, and he was, yeah. And we went in, we played the rest of the night, and he still just couldn't believe it for nine holes. We all couldn't believe it. We got in, we got presented the keys, and. At this stage, I had no car. <laughs> He's a doctor. <laughs> Another car to add to his, his shed. And uh, I was kind of thinking maybe he'd give me his old car, but no, nah, he, he didn't. Not even the key ring. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but he hit the shop at the end of the day. But, um, but yeah, it was just incredible to see such a, such a shot from someone that just had no idea over, over nine holes. Incredible. One of the most amazing things I've seen in golf, I reckon. Out, outside of having a hole-in-one, it's it's the, I reckon the second best feeling in golf is to see one of your playing partners and hopefully friends have a hole-in-one. I think uh, mm. I, I think that uh, it's happened to me twice in the last uh, sort of year. And, um, you know, I'm the one that runs off like a screaming child down to the green, looking at the ball, filming it. It's, it's, uh, and the guy, the guys, that, in this case, Dennis Armfield and Shura Taft have... Uh, both still just walking up, not not believing that it's in the hole, and uh, and I'm the one that no, that's in the hole, running down, jumping up and down. Happened to me as a kid. You know, that's what my I learned that from my playing partners as a kid when I had my first and only hole in one. The two older guys that I was with, they 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 behave like uh, children as well. So maybe I learned it from them. Mate, oh yeah, it took, took me a while to get a hole in one. I had one New Zealand Open on the ninth hole uh, a few years back, but yeah, it took me a fair while. Any. Any cash? Any cash for that one? No, there was a BMW up for gra- on the 16th hole. There was a five series BMW for hole in one, and mine was on the ninth. So, no, no keyring then either. So, I uh... <laughs> another one, another one of those one shots, <laughs> one shot short, buddy. Oh, jeez, Clint. Yep. So, mate, just I'll let you go in a, in a second because I know you got to get off. But PGA show in. In a couple of minutes or less, you know, describe to, you know, the people that are listening that haven't been to a PGA show in Orlando, Florida, the enormity of that place. Disneyland for golfers. It's that's all you could probably describe it as. It's got everything you could imagine, whether it's the latest design tee to the latest epic driver to golf carts and. I guess the great thing about the PGA show is you can go with your club pro, your your member, your general manager and your superintendent, and there's something there for all of you, whether you want to look at range carts or the latest driver that's released. Um, it's incredible. On the on the first days outdoors, and there's a 360-degree driving range, that's where all most of the testing happens. All the new clubs get released. You can try whatever club you want to try, and then the following three days you go indoors, and you, um, yeah, it's, whether it's apparel or clubs, you can, yeah. And you need you need four days to get around it all. It's uh, it's a pretty solid, 
pretty solid week, but it's a must if if you can manage to get to Orlando at the end of January at any any stage. It's it's incredible if you if you like golf. It's just amazing. Man, I know we joked about it, but pen, pencil me in for next year. Just pen, pencil no. pencil me in, and uh, I've yet to see it, but uh, I've heard many a story and. You know, when you say Disneyland for golfers, uh, it's enough to get anyone excited about making the trip and getting over there. Um, yep. Lastly, I guess coaches online, coaching online, you know, looking at stuff online about coaching. What's your thoughts on that? Because there's plenty of it that people can consume. <laughs> you know, if yeah. I'm if I'm a if I'm a new golfer and I'm and I'm looking at that sort of stuff, you know, what's what's your thoughts? What's your tips? What's your who who to watch? Who not to watch? I don't know. Yeah, I in my journey in the US there, I had about a six-month, 12-month stint where I was in between coaching. I was traveling, seeing a lot of coaches. So I went and spent time with Sean Foley, Scott Hamilton, George Gankus, who was probably the most followed guy on Instagram. It was GG Swing Tips, and I think he's George Gankus something now. Yeah, he um, changed it, yeah. Andrew Rice. So I went and sort of um, just wanted to, wanted to see what they were doing, and I traveled and saw them for a day here and there and watched them. Um, and it's there's a lot of there is a lot of rubbish online, and a lot of people can get really confused and head down a path that's just not for them. Um, at the end of the day, I think um, it's, it sounds. I know everyone says that it's a golf pro, but you, your own pro at your club or your your, your pro at your store. It's it needs to be tailored for you because if you you watch some of these tips, and they tell you to lay the club down and do this and that you might be already doing that and someone doesn't know that the Mm. difference between what they feel and what's actually real is often so far apart and they like it's actually scary to watch as a as a i'm still a pga member and a a coach and to see some of this stuff it's actually pretty scary to what is out there Uh, and having said that there's some great stuff out there like the me and my golf guys um they've got some good content that's quite generic and pretty you know easy to understand and not so um, method driven. So, um, but you know, we're all we're all got that golf geek in us that gets on there and watches and checks it all out, and we like that. And it's and it's the same, I guess, in every every industry. And yeah, I think the me and my golf guys are good. Um, I've heard there's a pretty good podcast getting around um, getting around Melbourne that's worth listening to, <laughs> 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 which. Um, yeah, I, I just yeah, I just think there's there's a lot out there, to, and it's just more and more. Whereas I mean, when I was a junior, there was no there's no YouTube, and you had to you had to go to your coach, you had to go to your go to your pro that was at your facility to to get lessons and get an understanding, and that that might have been a, a really good thing to, to to keep your keep your mind straight. But I guess that's the good thing about training aids too. You guys can sort of uh, get a training aid start to work on their own swing and and video their own swing now with technology and they can send it off to coaches and there's there's different platforms like that now where you can video your swing and send it off to your coach and, and actually get accurate feedback so clint so you know what what i would surmise there is is there are plenty of training aids you know whether it's the tour striker the ball or the or the um tour striker club you know an orange whip super speed it's like anything, you know, the best way to implement change and, and improve your golf is to do it under, you know, some guidance. And 
as you said, as much as you can watch on the internet, you know, the feel and the real is sometimes different. So, you, you know, you, it's really important to get that instruction. And it might just be one lesson, but it's better than, you know, self-implementation. And as Clint just said, go into a into a golf store with some great tracking technology and get a lesson there or go down to your club if you're a member of a club or go to a club where they offer lessons and just see someone who's, you know, knowledgeable about the game. If they're a PGA pro, obviously that goes without saying, and just get some instruction about improving your golf. And if they throw some, you know, training aids at you, learn how to use them and it's like the gym you know like people say to me do I, what training aids do I use and and you know I'm probably not the best example of, of implementing change through using training aids because to me it's like the gym you know I go for two weeks and then I stop and then I start again two months later and I'll go for two weeks and I stop and that's just me and I, and I know me but the people that I've seen make the best improvements are the people that get the advice get the implement and put into practice as per the instruction. And it's really simple. Can't be any more simple than that to make, you know, make golf easier. Yeah, absolutely. Mate, I'll uh, put the links on the podcast uh, show notes where we can find you and, you know, your Instagram page is fairly full of, um, you know, all of the training ads that you, you know, support in Australia. Um, if you go on to, on to uh, Clint's online space, you know, there's a little chat box that pops up, so you can ask Clint a, correct, a question directly. But, you know, one of the most approachable guys in, in the business, in the industry, um, in terms of product. So feel free to look it up. I'll put the notes in the show notes. Is there anything else, mate, that you want to cover off before we uh, I'll let you go? No. Sort of, um, what, are you, what, are you do, what are you doing tonight, mate? Are you coaching tonight or what have we got? Tennis tonight. <laughs> Tennis? I'm actually playing tennis, so it's been a really good um, learning curve for me because starting, I, want, I just wanted to start playing tennis last year. Never played before, wanted to just get into playing tennis. And I went up, caught up a local center, indoor center and started playing. And it was quite interesting. Um, then when we talk about watching on YouTube, yep. when I have to sit down and have some lunch often, I'm looking at YouTube clips on how to serve. <laughs> but I actually had one lesson and I got turned off it. And I was actually good to learn from a coaching point of view. I had this guy give me a lesson and he told me to uh, get more balanced, watch the ball, uh, extend the right arm. I needed to rise, my, bend my knees more and then I had to extend my knees and I had to breathe out, breathe in, not blink. And he told me eight things while hitting a shot and I had to stop him. I said, mate, <laughs> all one thing. <laughs> and I, he didn't know that I'd coached and I'd let him in a little secret. I was like, mate, I, I understand coaching and how to how best I would learn and this is not how I'd learn. So I'm oh, sorry, this is not going to work. And I, and I just, I remember my very next lesson coaching golf. I was like, you're getting one thing, one thing only, <laughs> not two, not three. And it was uh, it was great to actually put myself in a position where I had no idea of the concepts of what to do. Well, I had a little bit, but basically learning from ground zero and just get taught something. And it, it was a it was a great way to learn as a student of how I like to be coached. So, like most, so it's interesting. So, are you like most professional athletes that you know pick up a new discipline, you know, and compl- can apply learning pretty easily and pretty rapidly, have you become a very good tennis player? Uh, I wouldn't say just yet. I'm getting better. I only play once a week. That's the hard bit. And I relate that to golf. When I have students come to me and they play once a week, 
And I get it. It's hard when you just play once a week. And the times that I get a chance to play twice a week, my rapidly improve. So and it's very similar to golf. You play once a week and you sort of stay very much the same. I don't do any practice in between. But you get an extra game here and there, and it's like, wow, you can really improve. So I don't see myself entering any um, any Australian Opens anytime soon. <laughs> so we're not going to be we're not going to be first alternate for the uh, U.S. Open tennis at Flushing Meadows <laughs> and getting chucked off court. No, no, fair enough, mate. It's quite funny though. A couple of my playing partners in tennis have, after a few weeks, have gone. Are you that golfer that got kicked out of the U.S. Open? <laughs> you play golf, so yeah. Well, mate, if you just the, the articles are all still there, so mate, you, anyone who listens to this can go and consume half an hour of reading these articles that are all still there online. So you can follow up with uh, the story with the written, the written form from all the all the all the golfing journos from around the world from back a few years ago, mate. I I, I still remember the day that I, f- I first met you there on the tee. It's um, uh, Sanctuary Lakes helping me put some oh, yeah. you know, nail some banners into the ground, and you were more than willing just to stop and and you know give someone that you didn't know, you know, otherwise who was nailing flags into the ground a hand and uh, you That's ran... the Tasmanian coming out in there. Mate, it was the Hunter Valley <laughs> boy and the Tasmanian coming together and uh, <laughs> I appreciated that then and, you know, it's been great getting to know you and watch your uh, rise through, um, you know, what you do and I appreciate you now even more for coming on and spending an hour with me telling us your story. It's been great. Uh, I love it. My pleasure, Ross. Uh, it's been great. It's been good to actually go through and think about what I've done because often you don't reflect on you just go through every day and you don't stop and think about what you've done for the last couple of decades mate, incredible and it's a it's a fair bank of achievements there mate so be proud of that and uh, keep pushing along um, keep uh, the golfers of Australia getting better maybe uh, you know you'll get the next uh, US Open champion under your fold at uh, Albert Park where you do a little bit of coaching and uh, be nice All right, mate. Appreciate your time. Cheers. Thanks, Ross. See you, mate.